for flower lovers and growers and designers and suppliers, if what you want to do is make a good living, but also be beneficial to your community and to the environment, find the native plant alternatives that would do the same thing in a bouquet as a cultivar that isn't going to supply anything to the pollinators. And it will be more interesting in the floral trade anyway. Maybe it wouldn't last as long. Maybe you can't ship it as far, but it will be more interesting than having the same old set of five floral elements that anyone can get. It gives you this niche as well as this feeling of doing the right thing for the biodiversity and genetics of seed-grown plants. Yeah. Hello again, and welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzing. This is episode 628. This is the weekly podcast about slow flowers and the people who grow and design with them. It's all about making a conscious choice, and I invite you to join the conversation and the creative community as we discuss the vital topics of saving our domestic flower farms and supporting a floral industry that relies on a safe, seasonal, and local supply of flowers and foliage. This show is brought to you by slowflowers.com, the free online directory to more than 850 florists, shops, and studios who design with local, seasonal, and sustainable flowers, and to the farms that grow those blooms. It's the conscious choice for buying and sending flowers. And thank you to our lead sponsor, Farm Girl Flowers. Farm Girl Flowers delivers iconic burlap wrap bouquets and lush, abundant arrangements to customers across the U.S., supporting U.S. flower farms by purchasing more than $10 million of U.S.-grown fresh and seasonal flowers and foliage annually. Discover more at farmgrowflowers.com. And thank you to the Seattle Wholesale Growers Market, a farmer-owned cooperative committed to providing the very best the Pacific Northwest has to offer in cut flowers, foliage, and plants. The Growers Market's mission is to foster a vibrant marketplace that sustains local flower farms and provides top quality products and services to the local floral industry. Visit them at seattlewholesalegrowersmarket.com. Today's conversation is both timely and inspiring, compelling and important. I want to welcome Jennifer Jewell back to the Slow Flowers podcast. You are in for a very special hour with this gifted human and dear friend. Jennifer Jewell is a gardener, garden writer, and gardening educator and advocate. Since 2016, she has written and hosted the national award-winning weekly public radio program and podcast called Cultivating Place. Jennifer is particularly interested in the intersections between gardens, the native plant environments around them, and human culture. Jennifer is also a gifted author, and her third book is being released, was released actually yesterday, September 19th. I title this episode, Jennifer Jewell's Love Letter to Seeds, and I'm delighted to share the story of her magnificent new opus, What We Sow, on the personal, ecological, and cultural significance of seeds. A deeply insightful and thoroughly engaging storyteller, Jennifer explores the natural history of seeds, the loopholes in the seed supply chain for growing organic plants, how agribusiness has patented genomes of staple foods like corn and soy, and the efforts of activists working to regain legal access to heirloom seeds that were stolen from indigenous people and people of color. As Jennifer marvels at the beautiful wild seeds she encounters on her daily walks, 
She shares with the reader how, quote, to know and care for seeds ourselves is one of the most proactive steps we can take to rebuilding our human food systems, our social systems, and the global ecosystems of biodiversity on which we all depend, end quote. I'm delighted to share this conversation with you today. While her book is not illustrated with photography, Jennifer has shared lots of wonderful seed and landscape images for me to include in our show notes with captions so you can see all about her seed obsession. Uh, Head over to the Slow Flowers podcast to see more details for episode 628. Let's jump right in as I welcome Jennifer Jewell back to the Slow Flowers podcast. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Slow Flower Show with Deborah Prinzing. I am thrilled to welcome back Jennifer Jewell of Cultivating Place. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Deborah. I'm so excited to be here and just catch up with you and everyone out there. Don't we look like two little radio gals? We've got our headsets and mics. Yeah. (laughs) Well, uh, people who have listened to the podcast for a while have heard Jennifer as a guest. on past episodes. I'll share the links to those past episodes in our show notes at slowflowerspodcast.com. And Jennifer, it is so delightful to connect this way because you've also had me on your radio show, Cultivating Place, which I hope people have listened to. If, oh, if, you, yeah. if you haven't, then now's the time to start following it. And what do people do? They subscribe on a podcast platform to listen to. Yeah, they're available on all, uh, the the episodes are available on all the podcast platforms, but you don't even have to subscribe. You can just go to my website and hit individual episodes and just like look up Deborah Prinsing, Slow Flowers, and uh, you can find the flower episodes if that's what you want. So yeah, Yeah, it seems like it's available everywhere you get your podcasts, Deborah. And I tell you, I listen to, I listen to my earbuds in my phone all the time when I'm gardening. I want to hear, I usually listen to true crime or political news, to be honest. (laughs) But (laughs) if Cultivating Place is on, I will listen to that. That's always the top of the feed. Good. Um, But but we we are audio people and, and, you know, reading is a luxury. So um, anyway, we are here to talk about your new book, What We Sow. I love this book so much. And I asked, I told you originally that I was going to um, show images of the interior pages while we spoke. And you said, no, Deborah, it's, it's, it's a textbook. It's, <laughs> it's nonfiction. And you guys can see, I marked it up. Um, it's amazing love letter to seeds, Jennifer. I don't know how else to describe it. When you, it, the book is out on, um, Officially September 26th. Is that right? No. September 19th. September 19th. Yeah. I'm getting my dates wrong. So it's out on the September 19th. Um, you can pre-order it right now on any online place and, or call your local bookseller and ask them to get it for you. Um, but I call it a love letter. What What do you call it? I mean, if you can describe you know, it. <laughs> I, I think a, a love letter or a love song or like a you know, a, a prayer kind of, Mm. of, of hope that, you know, when I started it, you know, it's a, it's a quasi tribute to the plant world. It's a quasi tribute to my own mother, to mother earth, to all of our, our young people going forward as many generations as you might count. Um, and it was really like, it was a, 
a moment for me to learn and think about this plant world that I feel like I know a lot about and I have thought a lot about in my lifetime in whole new ways. I mean, it was so expansive for me, Deborah, and I there was just so much I didn't know and that I learned, some of it really depressing, but also ultimately, like much of our garden lives, uh, also so much of it really hopeful. Yes, I agree. I mean, when I finished reading What We Sow, I thought there's a lot of hard stuff in here about how humans are ignoring the Mm. cry for help from the environment and from the planet. Um, But there's also hope and and a sense of wonder that, that what, when you hold a seed in your hand, what does that represent? Right. Um, and you're a plants woman and you have been a lifelong gardener and you're the daughter and granddaughter of plants, people and, and gardeners. So how did seeds get on your radar? I mean, it's, it, we sort of take them for granted, don't we? Oh my gosh, we do. And you know, it's, it's interesting that you just said that about the wonder because since starting to write this book, uh, a little bit in, um, kind of modeling what, at least two different seed keepers shared with me. I, I tend to now like have an acorn in my pocket all the time if I can, or or a nut, like a bean or some some seed, because I think we do take it for granted. And and in the talks that I have already given about the book, one of the things I say is I I hold up a seed and I say, you know, like what is this? And we're told that an acorn, you know, from the time we're children. We're told that an acorn grows into an oak tree. But when you, you know, when you hold an acorn in your hand and then you really try and put your head around that fact right there, that this will grow into a massive tree that will live for, you know, up to 400 years and feed, you know, millions of different lives, human, mammal, bird, insect, microorganisms across all of those years, like... You just can't really conceive of the miracle that a seed is. Yeah. And we just, and we're like, yeah, whatever. It's a, yeah. it's a seed, like go about my day. And and that's good. Like we have to do that too. But stopping to really think about what a seed encapsulates literally and metaphorically was my task for the, the several mm-hmm. years of researching this book. And I had to keep like coming back to the wonder so that I didn't just... I don't know, crawl under my living room couch and cry because right. some of this stuff was really hard. Yeah. Right. It's true. I, I'm trying to think of how we're, I want to continue this discussion because, first of all, you know, as a writer and an editor, and you and I are both writers and editors, and we've had lots of these um, sisterhood of writers conversations with yeah. our pals, uh, we do like nerd out about structure and how do you, you've got this big epic topic, this this universe of a topic and how do you wrap your arms around it and make it accessible? You wanted the, this book is so accessible. I'm not a scientist. I'll never be a scientist. Um, but you use a lot of heavy scientific concepts and, and terminology and somehow you had to give it structure. So, I mean, the, the, 
maybe the gardener's year is what the structure is. I don't know. How do you describe the way you walk I, I through the that's, book? I think that's about right, you know, because I am also not a plant scientist. I am not a, a seed ecologist. I am not uh, any of those things. And so I had to grapple with, like, how do you describe the actual biological process of how a seed is formed from different, you know, the monocot, the dicot, the, you know, all of these things. Like, it was... It was a good struggle for me as well. And so I what I did to try and grapple with the the massive amount of information was exactly what you just said. I tied it into my year so that if you think about uh, the harv I, I start in October because that's sort of the the visible end of one cycle with harvest and seed saving and the beginning of the next. And I use sort of what is happening naturally in the wildlands around me, my own natural seed shed and my own cultivated garden life to kind of cue me on the different things I should be looking into. So, you know, the like right now, we were just talking about the acorns. Right now, they're fat on the trees, and they're about to start dropping and ripening. And so, and and I use like the different seasonal, the weather, like when we should plant, when we, when the seed catalog started coming in, I was like, oh, well, what is the, what is the history of seed catalogs? And then, you know, that kind of led to seed banking and seed law and uh, seed supply chains. And um, so I, I kind of come in and out of the deep research aspects and come back to kind of ground for me of what is happening around me. Like what are John and I actually doing in the garden? Right. And sometimes it's love it. Yeah. And that gave me kind of a little pause for breathing for both me and the reader. And, um, but also gave me real moments where I'd be like, Oh, that is what we do right now with seed. Therefore, what do I need to know more about that? moment in the cycle um, for, for me as a gardener. Like it it started to really feel like this was my own due diligence of taking myself back to school and learning things that I really should have known from the get-go. Yeah, but that cadence uh, is very evident. And for a, a reader who is a gardener, I it just felt natural. And you have at the top of every every chapter is a month, you, you have a topic and then you have when the when was the full moon or when is the new moon and when is the full moon? And that is very uh, omnipresent throughout the book. It's like, what's, what's right. your, what, what are your actions in response to like certain times to plant? You, you talk about some of these things that others might dismiss as just folklore. Right. And, and part of the reason I did that as well was one, this is, uh, it seems to be top of mind for many seed keepers. But more importantly, it gave me a universal aspect of life, no matter who you are or where you are. So to just use the Gregorian calendar, right? Like all we're talking about is kind of a a Christian European bias on the, on the seasons and, and the cycles of things. Whereas to use the weather and to use the moon and the sun, that allowed me to make sense to no, to everybody, no matter who you are. Like April 15th 
might mean many different things to different people, no matter where you are. But the moon and the sun cycles, those mean the same mm. thing to everybody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a really good point. And you you do reference um, various, um, you know, historical and cultural celebrations that relate to weather and moon and new year and um it, 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 it is something that we kind of know deep down, but we don't really pay attention to. So again, I appreciated that. And so Jennifer, you talk about your reference to landscape. Talk a little bit about where you live and what your influences are, because I think that really shapes everything about who you are as a, as a communicator and a person who is a seed keeper. I love that term and a gardener. I wish I really was a seed keeper, but I'm not. I'm more of like a, a seed lover, a seed yeah. hobbyist. But the um That's like me with floral design. <laughs> exactly. The um the the context of where I live. So I've I've lived in Northern California for about 15 years. And it has a lot of similarities to where I grew up at uh, about 8,000 feet in Colorado. But there are some interesting differences to that. But both dry, generally dry environments, generally experiencing the presence of fire as a natural and healthy occurrence. Mm. And, um, and I live in a little suburban house on the outskirts of the one of the big cities in my county, uh, Butte County. But my partner, John, lives about 30 miles away, 30 minutes away, rather, in like a, a remote and rural canyon. And I use the canyon where he has lived for over 40 years now. And it has long time sort of like homesteader people living on the land, as well as newcomers, as well as a lot of indigenous um, reference points. And it's this prescribed little canyon that has this small creek that is a, a kind of closed creek, meaning like the, the headwaters are kind of 10 miles north and the end point uh, is about 10 miles south. And so like it gave me a little macrocosm, microcosm, uh, for thinking about our larger ecosystems or our larger places in this one quite contained mm. historical seed shed, watershed, human shed. And so I do a lot with what is happening in the canyon and the changes over the last, you know, four or five hundred years. Right, and you you, re- you re- reference historical fires and migration and um, the drought that Northern California has experienced, and then how is that manifested? Oh, well, I saw this on a we saw this on the hike, or this is what you know what was suffering. This was what was thriving, and yeah, it's almost like um, a tour. You were you were touring your own environment or yours plus John's. Uh, with new eyes because yeah. you were trying to read it, read yes. it sort of thing. Yes. And be, you know, and I think, you know, uh, this certainly fits the description of, of a pandemic book. It started in the pandemic that I, I was like, wait, what don't I know about? Like, why are, why am I getting all these like out of stock, out of, out of, you know, back ordered, whatever on my seeds and me thinking, wait, who, where, 
where are seeds grown? Like, who does do this? Like, what, how does this happen? It's not just, you know, that, you know, like money doesn't come off a tree. Seeds do come off a tree, but they don't just get to me from the tree in most cases. And so how <laughs> they does don't it produce work? the envelope that just right, shows up right, in your inbox. Right. Yeah. And that fancy cute catalog. And um, so that was a real like rabbit hole. And, um, and to kind of, set that inquiry in the spaces that we were really did make me see, I'm like, oh my gosh, look at those seeds. I haven't even, for instance, Deborah, you will love this. I was in the garden the other day and I was looking at a seed pod and I was like, wait, is is that the arugula that just went to seed? And I have saved arugula probably most years in my adult life. And for the first time, just a few weeks ago, I noticed that it has this little like window pane membrane between the two sides of the seed pod, kind of like a money plant, kind of mm, like yeah. an area. And mm-hmm. um, how have I never noticed that before, Deborah? But I hadn't. And I got a picture of it with my little macro lens. And I was just like, wow, that is so cool. It's so funny you say that because after finishing, well, even during reading uh, what we sow, I was also noticing seeds that I had just walked past, you know, forever. And I have these two Amsonia plants in my front garden, (laughs) which uh, my landscape designer friend Karen told me I needed to get because they turn this beautiful amber in the fall. And the seeds are like this long. Yeah. And have you seen them? Yeah, I have. I was like, oh, I got to send these to Jennifer. <laughs> but I've never, I, I've seen pictures of them, but I've never like held them. So you feel free. Send I'm going them to because, <laughs> you know, I'm not really a seed collector and I don't know why people have given me seeds. They've like, I someone, I just saw on my desk, wild quinine that, that somebody sent me. Wow. Um, and uh, that's a kind of a, unusual floral design element, but you know, people who grow it swear by it as a, a textural. I don't even of, know it. I've got to go look it up now. It's kind of like a baby's breath alternative, but oh, okay. but a native plant. And um, but anyway, I just I you just change the way I look at things, and I think you change the way you look at things. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think that's like given what you do in this world and I do, like that is the point. We're trying to get ourselves and others like us to change the way we see things. And um, you know, sometimes that's a slog and sometimes it means we have to look at things we don't want to look at, but, but it's important. Yeah. yeah. Well, the way as a storyteller and a journalist, um, you are interviewing people and hearing their stories all the time. And so those, the, what I enjoy so much is there is maybe some heavy topic and then you find the person who's actively you know, involved in that topic and weave them into the story so we can learn more about what makes them click or tick and then, you know, what what they're doing to bring it back to their community and that the people that you talk with really bring this to life. Yeah. And they're where the hope is because, you know, you can only stay so long focused on bare Monsanto and pesticides and and genetic modification and control of genetic traits and, you know, like the biodiversity lot. Like we just cannot physically stay there for very long without wanting to give up. And so to keep coming back to these stories, a lot of whom I have interviewed on the podcast, but 
not all of them have I wonder aired. about that. Yeah, yeah, not all of them have aired on the podcast. And um, but those stories that are the through lines, you know, whether it's Rowan White of Sierra Seeds or Vivian Sansor of the Palestine Heirloom Seed Library or Jeff Quatrone, who's like trying to rediscover and introduce all of the like great tomato varieties that have been cultivated in New Jersey. Right. Yeah. I'm following him on Instagram now. Yeah. Thanks to you. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, just really like it reminds you that no matter how d- terrible things seem, there's always a group of people out there who will make you feel better because they yeah. are working so hard right where they are to improve conditions. I, yeah. That was the takeaway for me is that, you know, it's it's daunting to think about the global uh, corporate seed mm. into seeds and chemical companies integrated. I don't get that. Mm. It's frightening, but I know it's a, we've heard about it in food for right. so long, but I didn't think about it applying to other, um, you know, crops that we grow. Um, or maybe I just thought it was six commodity crops and that was it. Right. But all of that is you feel like, well, what can I do? Mm-hmm. What can one person do? And you, you give people a roadmap for what to do. Yeah. You see, you know, and, and that's true for me too, Deborah. of, uh, what can I do? And it's, it's go out and walk in my little Canyon or in my suburban neighborhood, appreciate what's there, tend for what's there. And, um, that at least is a good start. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I'm going to ask you before we wrap up, if you'll maybe read the last page of the book, because that's sort of your little benediction for uh, the future and the positivity. Uh, But let's just talk about a few things that I think people in the flower industry might need to, might find particularly interesting, interesting, even if if they're gardeners or flower farmers and uh, also floral designers. So what is your take on this whole, you know, patent protected hybridization like how can we you know obviously people need to make money if they have a particular discovery but like where is the balance in all of that um you're not supposed to collect seed from you know flowers that you've grown that are particularly trademarked is that the right kind of way to describe it Um, yes uh (laughs) by law you're not supposed to collect and keep growing seed from a patented or trademark plant and and most of anything that is patented and trademarked probably wouldn't come true from seed anyway uh because in because that's been bred into it right right because in theory uh if our you know, powers that be are doing their job correctly. No patent or um, uh, no patent or trademark can be given to something that occurs naturally. Okay. So, like, it has to be a human created cultivar or or species or breed that is allowed to have a patent or a trademark. Like, if Mother Nature, and this is one of the things that the seed keeper out of India, Vandana Shiva, really epitomizes the story of her going to to battle for like a decade with the USDA and all of the big corporate companies who had illegally and unethically slapped a patent on the neem plant. So we all know neem oil. It's one of the 
you know, volatile oils or um, what do we call those oils we put on? Horticultural oils we yeah. put on tr- plants in the winter to help with pest control. And we see it in all kinds of therapeutic oils and, and rubs and creams and because it is an ancient and naturally occurring plant with all of these bioactive ingredients in it. So it is a fantastic medicinal and uh, horticulturally therapeutic plant. And they had patented it as though they had developed it, which they had not. And, you know, the Indian cultures have been using that plant for its active ingredients for centuries, but she had to fight, like, and it was an expensive fight to get that patent removed. So- in because theory, neem oil was naturally occurring, so therefore right. should not have been patented. Exactly. Oh, my right. goodness. So um, anyway, so that's just one example. But, um, you know, I think that for flower lovers and growers and designers and suppliers, the key is, you know, if what you want to do is make a good living but also be beneficial to your community and to the environment, try and grow as many, like that native plant quinine right there, the wild quinine. Like, find the native plant alternatives that would do the same thing in a bouquet as a cultivar that isn't going to supply anything to the pollinators. And it will be more interesting in the floral trade anyway. Maybe it wouldn't last as long. Maybe you can't ship it as far, but it will be more interesting than having the same old set of five floral elements that anyone can get, right? Right. So it gives you this niche as well as uh, this feeling of doing the right thing for the the biodiversity and genetics of seed-grown plants. Yeah. It's interesting also, it makes me think of your, many times in the book, you talk about the heirloom varieties and the fact that there's so much lost and who are the people who are trying to do the work in various, either various cultures or, or, you know, ethnicities to save or find the single plant that can be, that can be re, you know, replanted and and grown. And so there's more seed of that. Right. Um, what what are the, some of the ones that really struck you in that in that kind of well, facet you know, of this book? You know, I would definitely say that you know, like Hudson Valley Seed is doing a fantastic job of trying to uh, accumulate and then share forward very openly some of these interesting cultural heritage plants, vegetables, and floral. Uh, plant seeds and like their art packs are just so beautiful. Yeah. But but I think this is true of of most. So my recommendation to you is look through the index, see who are the seed growers and suppliers in your area and start asking them like what are our local heirlooms? What are our locally bred historic varieties that might be of interest to me? And um and and there are a couple of seed keepers that I've interviewed whose stories may not actually have ended up in the book, but who say that like they'll discover the seed in somebody else's garden, they'll collect it and then a, a local seed company will say to them, would you grow enough to share with us to sell forward? And that way you make sure that this beautiful asset is actually out there in the world being propagated by a lot of people, not just one. Well, that was another lesson I learned from one of your comments about, um, I think it was maybe this group that was in uh, uh Arizona and they were they were saving native seeds of, mm-hmm. from native peoples or indigenous peoples but they realized they can't just have one place to grow these seeds because 
the seeds then aren't as vigorous because right. they're growing only in one climate. And, and that was and interesting. Really interesting. So that lesson from Native Seed Search was, I, I just thought, really insightful, both environmentally, but also culturally, you know, to have the seed out in the community, um, you know, whether that's a hundred miles wide and, and long, right? Or um, in a lot of different environmental conditions means that the, the seed will continue to adapt and become resilient in those different changing climates. But it also means that there are more people being um, trained by that seed to be good seed keepers and growers and tenders so that you are growing a community of seed keepers while you are growing better and more diverse and adaptable seed. So that just, that was a beautiful lesson yeah. right there. Yeah. And and a great site visit that you and John. Uh, it was took, great took journey. Yeah. If anyone is ever down there in Tucson, definitely make an appointment to go see the grounds at Native Seed Search, and um, and they're a wonderful website to look at and just learn a lot about. I remember going when the Garden Writers Association had their um, annual meeting in uh, Tucson in 2012, I believe, wow. and um, even even just the the amount of unique corn varieties that they had right. saved, uh, you know, is a lot, a far cry from what I see even at the farmer's market. So it was impressive. Yeah. Um, I marked, uh, I marked up this book as I showed when I held up the pages. Um, Jennifer, you and I have a mutual friend, Marianne Newcomer, and she put a post somewhere on Facebook, maybe that she needed a dictionary uh, <laughs> next to her when she was reading <laughs> what we saw. <laughs> That dictionary is really more a scientific dictionary, I think. You use a lot of terminology that you must have gotten through. And I did try and gloss it everywhere I could so that we were all learning these words together. Oh, for Not, sure. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, that's a good point because you kind of, you. it's sort of like you gave people enough context that they could figure out what it was. Well, so I read, read it not with a dictionary, but with a highlighter. And I was just decided I'm going to throw a couple of things I highlighted out to you okay. and get your reaction. This was May 21st. And uh, of course, coming from being a, life, a floral lifestyle book editor, this really struck home. You said, you're talking about small plant place-based seed startups reflecting this interesting trend in influencing the home gardener and running somewhat counter to a garden world increasingly dominated by selling gardening as a lifestyle and status symbol even as another commodity. And I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> and know? We, all, we all know it, right? We are all <laughs> influenced by those pretty pictures of things we really should never be growing or really couldn't grow well in our places. But um, it, it is interesting. Well, yeah, it was like a lifestyle makes it very product-driven. And mm -hmm. um, that may, honestly, that may be one reason why the pandemic panic buying happened, um, that was more survival, I guess, than a lifestyle. But that's really what, what you were referring to. Um, I don't know. The other thing that I really loved, uh, in the April chapter, which you call Seeds, Human Banking History, you gave, you gave a lot of references to how seeds pass through generations and pass through people who are voluntarily or being forced to relocate over mm centuries. And um, I, one reference you, were, you referred to um, 
uh, both um, American Indian and also um, people who uh, basically were forced to move to the U.S. as slaves. And you said, um, these in-clothing and in-hair seeds are also seed banks, no less valuable for being clandestine, whose techniques for preservation date back unknown thousands of years as humans have battled with and sometimes overcome unseen catastrophes, climatic, seasonal, and imperialistic. And like that just was so poignant to think about yeah. as again, we're taking seats for granted. And in other other times in in humanity, they right. were they were currency. They were like yeah. they were saving people's lives. Yes. I mean, and you know, I start the book in my introduction as I was doing the editing uh for the final version. Uh we were having drought and fire, and there was a big fire in New Mexico. And on the front page of the New York Times, or not front page, but a big page in the New York Times was this picture of a, a woman who works in water. Um, like acequia law and preservation in New Mexico. And she was having to evacuate her house. And like millions of people for millions of years before her, I, I know we haven't really existed for millions of years. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Her, the first thing she did was she put her collection of seed corn into her truck. Like that's what she thought to take, like many humans before her. And you think about the migration patterns happening on our planet right now with you know the the flooding in um, was it Syria, Syria today yeah. and then the the terrible earthquake in Morocco and you know this is these are decisions people have to make all of the time and hmm. it, they are not just historic and yeah. Um, yeah flooding in Libya I just that's checked it. my phone yeah okay good yeah yeah I mean that's that's both the 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 climate change megaphone saying to us yeah. humans stop messing up this planet and yet on the flip side you've documented in and with people you've interviewed that seeds somehow can survive some of the worst natural disasters and re re-sprout and create growth again and and is i know fire has been quite a bit um the sort of the topic of fire as a way to regenerate seeds has been you know especially in california kind of always in the news. Um, but you said something about smoke affecting uh, right. seeds. I didn't really, understand that. Really interesting. And in that there is more and more research on this in, in the kind of wake of fire research happening and how ecosystems restore themselves and how ecosystems have declined in this long period of fire suppression, right? So there are whole series and suites of plants who have co-evolved in fire-prone regions to actually only really regenerate well and re-sprout well with the presence of fire and or to re-sprout from their crowns or have their, their seeds actually open and disperse because of fire. Mm. But more and more research is being done on the beneficial effects of just smoke on the seed, the natural seed bank, wow. seeds that are either on the, the trees or shrubs or plants mm -hmm. and trees that are uh, seeds that are in the soil and that the presence of the smoke, even in the water, so like smoky water will improve the germination rates of some of these fire adapted plants. Isn't that fascinating? It is so fascinating. And it yeah. just shows you that the, it's a nature is perfect. And that we know, like there's so much we don't know yet about how it works so beautifully. 
Yeah. 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 You, you refer a lot to how animals, mammals, birds, um, insects basically are the portals for moving seed and, and helping seed, you know, whatever plant that seed is from live again, because yeah. they have to be, they have to end up in somewhere where they can germinate and it might, right. and water's one of them too, I guess. Yeah. Which is interesting. And that was such a, a lovely parallel to the flowers we love, right? Is that these plants have figured out these ways to attract us twice. Mm. Once with their beautiful flowers, right? And then with their beautiful fruits, which are their carrying their seed. And by attracting us, and by us, I mean those creatures that eat seed, uh, we are drawn to helping the plant disperse itself across its its space, which I just find fascinating, right? Like the colors and the way it pops and the way it tastes and all of these things have led us to, just like we help the plants pollinate, we help the plants disperse too. And, uh, yeah. and we get our reward. Yeah. And for a word lover like me, it is such a joy to read Jennifer Jewell's descriptions of the Shapes the quirky shapes oh, and they're fascinating crazy. Yeah. forms of seeds and what they do and the sound they make when they pop. Like right. you must have had so much fun. Um, really, I, I'm sure as a writer, you had to stop and go, okay, now what is this seed saying to me? You can't just rattle it off. You had to no, think about it. You really did because they are, you know, if we have 300,000 different species of flowering plants, just the angiosperms. Okay, wow. 260,000 of which have been described, and people think about 40,000 haven't yet been described. Um, that is that many different species who have all come up with slightly different ways to do exactly what we're talking about. And so there are some similarities, you know, there are, there are those that have, you know, like a dandelion pod, you know, like seed pod or uh, a maple samara or an right. acorn or a nut, whatever. There are similarities, but they all have different quirks. And so just that multiplicity of diversity was, it was fun to play in. Yeah. You used the uh, metaphor for like lanterns a few times, which I oh. really loved. And I, I could picture them like the tiny, but intricately shaped like a, like a paper lantern. I loved that. Um, I also loved the, the, like the corkscrew descriptions and the, you would describe like the moment that's, casing pops open and the seeds disperse. Yeah. You had to really slow down and observe this. Well, and it's crazy because they, like then you dig into all that research, people who are out there measuring, like how far does the poppy seed pod or does the lupin seed pod, you know, which is one of the legumes that kind of corkscrews a little bit. And so that torque just makes it pop. Like how far does the seed go? And they're like, I think it's 10 feet. I think it's four feet. I, you know, like it's it, like it, a physics lesson. Right. And um, you know, and you're you're just like, this is this is art, this is engineering, this is um, this is music, this is all of that. Hmm. Well, what are you growing right now? Are you you're planting uh things that will establish now for spring harvest, like in your winter garden, or describe a little bit about what and well, I've been to your house, and it is a it is a suburban garden with a small courtyard in the front and a and a like enclosed garden in the back, right? Mm -hmm. Yep, small, lovely. Uh, we it is. I grow um, 
I grow little things from pot, uh, seeds in pots at my garden. Otherwise, it's fairly like uniform in the back. I have my salvias and my lavender and a lot of native plant pollinator plants that I don't I don't mess with that much. Ten years into being here, that's just kind um, of your your harmonious landscape. Yes, yeah. yes, and it For the has pollinators. Its, it has its flow, and you know I have a lot of native buckwheats, the areogonums, which I love, and the salvias. Um, but out at John's, we will plant more of our like vegetable seeds and we will divide and try seeds of the native flowering plants. So for my birthday, every year for my birthday, we do some big planting thing. And last year we planted, I want to say like 15 different native species of uh, lilies and um, the Tritilea and Brodea bulb group uh, plants from oh, our fun. area. Uh-huh. And they're one of these projects that that will take um, two or three years before we actually have something that flowers, Deborah. <laughs> but we have little green things coming up and I look at them and we have to be careful not to overwater them. And their seeds are so beautiful. Like the seeds of the native lilies honestly look like they're gilded. They are wow. they are gold flecked little kind of eyedrop shaped um seeds that are just you're like, wow, how how did the gold get there? I don't know. And you're it's referring cool. Yeah, and you're referring to the anticipation that yeah. gardening forces on all of us. Yeah. But if you've planted the seed, there's so much more satisfaction when that yeah flower blooms. I, I did that so Instagram hopefully post. in five years, I'll show you that I actually got a lily, Deborah. Well, I'm impatient. So I did, um, <laughs> I posted last month uh, uh, your book with some of the things I grew from seed this yeah. year. And usually, you know, I just don't have a lot of confidence and I'm like, oh, and I'm going to be traveling. So Bruce will forget to water. And, but this year I was just committed. To- it was a great collection. I, and, and you're right. There's something very different about collecting or cutting from plants we grew from seed, you know, and to know that full cycle of planting the seed and then collecting the seed later, like that. That is a sort of intimacy of knowing a friend for their whole life. It's different. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yes. You have to make a big deal out of it when these lilies um, kind of <laughs> germinate. Wow, that's amazing. Well, I, I don't know. There's so much here. I just want everybody to buy this book and just do what I did, which was take a month at a time. And it's kind of like, you know, bite size that way. You sit down and, and with a cup of tea and start your day with, with a a section or a month of what is Jennifer doing in her environment and who has she gone off to learn from and what can we take from that? That's sort of how I like. That's a great way to do it. Cause there are some, there are some hard parts. You kind of just have to keep slogging. Like you just have to push through and then it gets easier again. You reward the reader after you've told them this depressing stuff, (laughs) you lift them up. And, um, and this is a a paragraph I marked in October. So you start with October, but you end with October. Yeah. Okay. So in the ending, um, you were talking about all these international organizations coming together, trying to Mm. do, you know, save seeds and create like critical seed banks and, um, preserve seeds in various cultures that have maybe been ignored or left, you know, left unsupported and all. But you say, I can't remember what this word means, recommoning. You said each act of recommoning, yeah. each act of courage through seed and courage, courage seeded 
is germinating a different worldview, a different seed narrative, and there is increasing momentum. And I just felt hopeful when I read that. And uh, let's, what does that mean, recombinate? Well, so when you think of the ancient and and more land-based pers- you know, communal idea of all plants, all water, all rock, all minerals, all ocean, all mountains— they don't belong to anyone. They are held in the commons. They, mm. they, they are, they are For the common good. <clears throat> yes, they okay. are ours to share as uh, as living creatures on this planet. So, so they are part of our common um, inheritance just yeah. by just by virtue of being here on the land, and this idea that has been perpetuated by, you know, our our European and colonial mindsets is that we have to we have to buy everything. We have to own our land that somehow we actually can own land. Um stake a claim on the- Right, exactly. And and then we're gonna patent the seed and we're gonna, you know, we're gonna exclude. We're gonna continue to like put up fences and exclude others and buy things. Mm -hmm. And so to take those fences down and those barriers down and those patents away and to return seed to its rightful place in the commons uh, Mm -hmm. is, is this idea of investing in the quality of life in the future for everybody, not just for my children, but for everybody's children, not just for our neighborhood, but for everybody's neighborhood. And that, um, We've gotten so, you know, like there are so many stories and histories of land-based peoples being like, what are you talking about? Like, that's your land. That's not your land. That's the land. And we Mm -hmm. all live here. And so, you know, like, are we really going to get rid of this idea of private ownership? No. But can we have an ethics that is based on the good of all at least starting in our gardens and for our seed. It, like to me, it, it might sound like crazy liberal, blah, 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 but it, it's, it's like it was powerfully hopeful to me to uh, see the people yeah. that are striving for that level of care in our world. Oh, I love it. And really, if we can um, just support that in our own communities which is happening with seed swaps and seed sharing and seed libraries, lending libraries for seeds. I love it. Yeah. Like those are small gestures that, that do add up. Well, and it's just like what you've done with slow flowers, Deborah, to be quite honest, you have, you have taken the idea of corporate owned flowers grown somewhere else on land. They seem to think they own by people who might not have any vested interest in it. And you have returned it to the commons, encouraging people to grow flowers where they are, share them with each other, create these backyard economies and, and exchanges like that is a recommoning. I love it. Oh, I love it. Well, I will have to continue this conversation when we finally see each other, but um, it's just so beautiful. And I don't know, do you have a copy of the book with you? I do. you? I do. I was wondering if you would just read, give us a little reading before we wrap up. I would love it. Tell me the page. Well, I was thinking page 337, the bottom paragraph starts out, well, you start to say, I wish I could say this was a tale of California, but it's not. But that's sort of the, your reference to what you wrote before that, which was about 
your environment, but yeah. maybe you could just read the last, that leading to the end of the book, which is on page the next page, three, sure. 338. Okay. Yeah. Happy to. I wish I could say this was just a tale of California, but it's not. Perhaps I should rephrase that. I'm glad this is not just a tale of California because it is, in fact, a tale of life. It is a tale of what we see and what we don't see, what we seed and what we don't seed. It is a tale of what we nurture and what we don't nurture, how the world we want and how we want the world is, as always, up to our individual seeds and seedings. The seeds of change are in all of us if we wish to nurture them, to save them and grow them out and on. The seeds, even with a small seed set, are still there in the creeks, in the forests, in the meadows, on the mountaintops, in the soil, in the burn scars, in tiny glass jars, in people's cupboards, mm. in old tins under beds, in envelopes in drawers, in large seed bank vaults and regional seed banks and public seed libraries, in communal seed swaps and in sacred buildings of worship waiting in the cracks of city sidewalks and on rural roadside edges the world over. We need them all. A great diversity of seeds and seed people are also miraculously there in academic and traditional ecological science, in spiritual centers, in art studios and craft circles, in agriculture and horticulture of both rural and urban communities. For now, what exactly are the contours of our humanity? Are they perfectly formed to the texture of a mustard seed, of an acorn, of the glossy chestnut, of the glossy chestnut handful of a buckeye with its eye-like hilum? Are they <clears throat> are they the permeating fragrance of basil seed, the elaborate armature of a pipe vine? Are they the juicy protein invitation of an eliasome or sweet flesh of a berry, an apple? Can the contours of our humanity expand back out to be that infinitely diverse, artful, flavorful, and generative? The seed and the seed keepers among us believe they can. They see seed and reseed their great expectations and faith that we can meet this moment, these many moments, for and with the seed in our crops, in our wildlands, in our communal food and festivals, art and ceremonies, for the seeds in our collective hearts, minds, and bodies, our hopes, prayers, and blessings. Mm. Thank you. It's wonderful hearing it in your voice. And we should wrap up by saying you can get this as an audiobook. 
<laughs> you can. I I did the audio book in my voice. It was a it was a it was a lift, but it was it was great. So yes, I believe the audio book will be out on the same day as the hardback. And um, awesome! Yeah. It was a great joy to be with you. Thank you so much, oh. Deborah. And I will see you at the Northwest Flower and Garden Show in February. For anybody that wants to be there, we will both be there. Yes, if you want to get your signed copy of what we sew if you're in the Seattle area. But there's an extensive calendar of Jennifer's appearances. Um, one of one or two of which you've already done, but uh, coming up through the the fall and um i will share that in our show notes thank you maybe you can meet jennifer in person and um have her sign your book and um it, be enriched and and look at seeds in a new way so jennifer thank you so thank much you. this is wonderful oh, so nice to be here with you Thank you so much for joining us today. You can watch the replay video for episode 628 in our show notes at slowflowerspodcast.com. I will also include a link to order your copy of What We Sew and a calendar of Jennifer's upcoming author appearances, lectures, and book signings. Perhaps there's an event close to you, and if so, be sure to tell Jennifer you heard her here on the Slow Flowers Podcast. Next week, we'll resume our 10-year anniversary celebration of our award-winning Slow Flowers podcast, featuring an inspiring past guest who originally appeared in year seven. I can't wait to share that episode with you. Our next sponsor thank you goes to Longfield Gardens, which provides home gardeners with high-quality flower bulbs and perennials. Their online store offers plants for every region and every season, from tulips and daffodils to dahlias, caladium, and amaryllis check out the full catalog at longfield-gardens.com. And thank you to Rooted Farmers. Rooted Farmers works exclusively with local growers to put the highest quality specialty cut flowers in floral customers' hands. When you partner with Rooted Farmers, you are investing in your community and you can expect a commitment to excellence in return. Learn more at rootedfarmers.com. I love all this floral goodness, and I'm so happy you joined me today. The Slow Flowers Podcast is a member-supported endeavor, downloaded more than one million times by listeners like you. Thank you for listening, commenting, and sharing. It means so much. As our movement gains more supporters and more passionate participants who believe in the importance of our domestic cut flower industry, the momentum is contagious. I know you feel it, too. If you're new to our weekly show or our long-running podcast, check out all of our resources at slowflowerssociety.com. I'm Deborah Prinzing, host and producer of The Slow Flowers Show and The Slow Flowers Podcast. The Slow Flowers Podcast is engineered and edited by Andrew Brenlin. The content and opinions expressed here are either mine alone or those of my guests alone, independent of any podcast sponsor or other person, company, or organization. Next week, you're invited to join me in putting more slow flowers on the table, one stem, one base at a time. Thanks so much for joining us today, and I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.